industry is live. Hello and welcome to the Jerems Miller Technical Forum. This is a part of the Jerems Miller Knowledge Hub, um, where we aim to bring together like-minded professionals and promote collaboration on all areas of tax. Uh, I'm Nick Wright and I'm here with Pete Miller to discuss our thoughts on the upcoming autumn statement next week. Pete and I work together in Jerems Miller um, and we provide services mostly to accountants, tax advisors and also end clients. Um, on most areas of corporate reconstructions, mergers and acquisitions, employment-related securities, share schemes, um, including anti-avoidance rules like transactions and securities. Just trying to think. I don't think I've missed anything there, have I, Pete? Um, Anti-Phoenix rules, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Get a lot of that. So lots of anti-avoidance kind of provisions. So we mainly operate in the um, corporate tax arena, but Hopefully there's plenty of you out there also um, in other areas of tax um, and we can collaborate with each other and help each other out as the case may be. Um, so as I say, in this episode, we are sharing our thoughts on the autumn statement. Um, and I sprung on Pete yesterday that I thought it might be fun if we have a little competition of um, <coughs> and I'll make our own predictions and we'll see who, um, who, who came out top. Uh, this time, well, not this time, next week, it'll be, um, it's Wednesday is the autumn statement. So I, I think I'm guaranteed to win the competition overall on the basis that I've got to bet on myself to lose. Yeah. <laughs> so you, so I'm going to win one way or the other, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So we already know that, you know, the, the economy is verging on a recession. Um, inflation is high, but it has actually come down. So that was a, a bit of good news um in the in the last few days that cpi has dropped i think it's as low as it's been for quite a while up to 4.6 percent so um but obviously we've also probably one of the major um aspects of this autumn statement is the fact that we've got a, another general election looming around the corner um so yeah, I, yeah with, I think with that, that in mind sorry nick um i think yeah, that I'm, is going to constrain the chancellor quite a lot in a way because i know <clears throat> your view is he's probably going to do some stuff that's quite business friendly mm. and i think that would probably be quite sensible because i guess a lot of natural voters for the tory party are business owners uh, and the like who would like to see some good stuff but there again he's fiddled so much with things like um you know the the, the allowances for capex um the pensions limits and all sorts of other things that affect business owners question mark is he going to fiddle even more in the last few months before an election um and i guess my my view is on the other hand you know business owners aren't going to be enough to win them the election is there anything he's likely to do to bring the average man in the street back into the tory fold um and especially in those those various non-Tory areas that became Tory at the last election and created this very, very large majority they've had. So it's an interesting dynamic. My personal feeling is, is mm -hmm. there's almost nothing he can do because he's fiddled around with the whole tax code so much over the last few years. When I say he, actually <laughs> successive chancellors, but... <laughs> I was going to say, there's been um, enough of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, the other question is, is it too late, whatever they try and do? Based on it, all the stuff I've been reading, I'm not. I am. I hold my hands up and say I am absolutely not someone who could provide any commentary on politics. But um, everything I've read and heard, it might be too late. Whatever they do, to, uh, I, I think that might be right. It might be damage limitation. 
Mm. I mean, in some ways, you could almost argue that it gives them the opportunity to actually do some things that might be beneficial to UK PLC as a whole on the basis that it might make absolutely no difference to the results of a general election. But yeah. sadly, politicians don't generally think that way. Um, <laughs> so, yes. Anywho. Let's talk tax. Yes, let's talk tax. Um, where should we start? EOTs? We've um, talked enough I think about so. EOTs. <laughs> yeah. So, so for um, those who perhaps aren't quite so familiar with them, um, the the Finance Act 2014, so quite a, quite old legislation now, I guess, um, but brought in this concept of if you sell your shares to an employee ownership trust or EOT, uh, you won't pay any capital gains tax subject to satisfying a fairly hefty range of conditions. Um, and it's something that I think kind of got ignored for a few years because business asset disposal relief or sorry, entrepreneurs relief, as it used to be, was yeah generous with sort of 10 million pounds of annual lifetime allowance so you could save a million quid why go through the difficulties because it is more complicated to deal with an employee ownership trust etc etc um well, you say that mm. but it's more comp i would say it's more complicated to go through a third party sale but the ongoing running of an employee owned business is more complicated i think that's fair enough and they both have their advantages and disadvantages and i think a third party sale or even a management buyout relying on entrepreneurs relief was more familiar i mean yeah. in many ways I'd, I'd admit i'd hold my hands up and say it was more familiar to me if i was in front of a client and anyone said oh i've heard of these eot things i might say something like yes i've heard of them i haven't done one i could look them up for you mm. in the hope that the client would kind of settle on something that i was a bit more familiar with because yeah we all prefer the, the familiar yeah the other thing with eot's i mean the, it wasn't just that there wasn't much awareness out there with clients many advisors didn't really know much about them as you say really yes. and i mean we, we've put, i don't know how many we've done i've lost count of how many seminars mm. and webinars we've done even in the last couple of months on them with various providers so the awareness is growing well i think it, everything's tied into one when business asset disposal relief went down to a million pound then people started talking about it at the same time awareness was increased among the profession and everything just seems to have snowballed a bit so i can't i don't know the exact figures but it was something like you know the first few years but there were sort of about 20 a year or something happening whereas now there's more than 500 a year going on so um yeah i think eot's are becoming much more for those various reasons um yep and Probably why HMRC want to look at them a bit more, and hence why we have a consult. Well, had a consultation yes. issued, um, to which we have well contributed, contributed. Yes, the deadline for that was the twenty eighth of September. So I guess my first thought is: is that long enough for them to do anything? Less than two months after the consultation closed. I I, I think so. Um, I mean, I suppose the question is: is it going to get announced next week? Um, might it be reannounced or announced for the first time in a March or whatever mm -hmm. fiscal event instead, with a view to being brought in for FA 2024? Yeah. Difficult to tell. Um, but I mean, some of this stuff has been gestating for a long time. So, yes. um, yes. I mean, it was probably two and a half years ago that um, I first started sort of saying this legislation is defective. Uh, in the area of corporate tax. So one of the areas, mm. for example, um, is that there is actually no exemption from income tax. If, if a company sells to a trust, the trust has to pay the consideration to the vendors. And the only way they can do that is by getting money out of the trust. Sorry, out of the company, out okay. of the trading yeah. company that's been bought. Um, and Generally speaking, the only way they're going to, the trustees are going to get money out of the trading company is by way of a distribution. Now, for the nine years since the legislation was enacted, um, there's basically been a complete fudge whereby um, the revenue will look at the specific situation, usually in advance. So we normally get a pre-transaction clearance and agree that technically what is happening is that the directors of the company are uh, arranging for the company to make a contribution to the trustees that is therefore not to be treated as a taxable distribution 
and there's no income tax leakage, which would otherwise be at 39.35%. So essentially, um, you fund the purchase in the same way as you fund a management buyout. But there is no piece of legislation that actually exempts those payments from the company to the mm. trustees from income tax on distributions. And there is frankly no basis in law, even in tax law, from my perspective, um, for, for the treatment that is generally accepted. And one of my roles before I came out into private practice was that I was the old inland revenues uh, in-house technical expert on corporate distributions. So yep. when I first saw this legislation, I kind of thought this is completely wrong. Um, and, you know, obviously, <laughs> yes, there's a practical solution. But why didn't they put simply put some kind of exemption into the legislation when, when it was enacted in 2014? So this this sort of ended up being some conversations uh, within the CIOT um, because I chair the owner managed um business tax committee uh, in the CIOT um, and also um, with Graham Nuttall who um, himself was was kind of almost instrumental in the tax relief um, existing at all because he wrote the um, report on employee ownership in 2013 that led directly or indirectly to to this legislation uh, and he had his own thoughts on on some defects in in the legislation or in the practicalities of the way in which it actually works so mm. through the ciot we made some representations quite a long time ago and those were certainly reflected in the consultation document that came out as presumably were a number of things that other people had made representations on um yeah, And in a sense, sorry, that's a fairly long-winded answer to your question, Nick, but it does mean that a lot of the background thinking has already happened within HMRC and Treasury. Yeah, and I think we'll go through them, the, some of the points we responded on. Well, we've responded on all the points, but some of the points we made um, to see whether those are... E so I think some are easier to change than others mm. in, a, in a short period of time. So <clears> whether <throat> some of those easier ones are announced immediately. Um, we've also had a comment from Roger, so thanks for contributing, Roger. Um, I think the consultation questions were all fairly sensible. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and yes, they could have gone further. And we, as I say, we did put some um, further detail into our response, especially. Um, uh, and you just hope that, this, that they stick with the original brief and, and don't go beyond. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think it's a big thing because EOT is now... And we've seen various research done by people like the Employee Ownership Association, which says employee ownership is good for the economy. You know, it drives long-term business growth. Um, we always say, you know, when you sell into an EOT, you typically have deferred consideration. So the first thing you've got to do is make the profits to pay out the vendors. But once you've done that, especially if you sold all of the shares into an EOT, now the company has more money either to pay more salaries to its employees, which means more income tax, BAYE, national insurance, or it means that the business has more funds to grow. So, um, you know, it's it's just logical that an employee-owned business um, will improve the economy in the long term. Mm, well, um, no incentive to pay effectively bonuses, as it were, to um, shareholders who make no contribution to the business. Well, exactly. Yeah. Um, so... I think, yeah, I mean, as you say, uh, Roger, I, I think, can can they go further? Yes. Um, but at least there is some attention, I guess, on employee ownership as it currently stands. Um, so should we have a look at some of the things we actually said and see? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, the we most thought. obvious one since, since we've already talked about it is that they are talking about exempting distributions made by the company. Yeah to the trustees for the purposes of paying for the shares, paying the um, stamp duty, um, and um, I think professional fees as well. Um, we, we suggested that the exemption should be extended to the normal costs that the trustees might um, have to incur. So, for example, uh, given some of the thrust of the, the consultation document was about independence of trustees, if a, um, a, a, a company or sorry of trust decides to appoint professional trustees we think those costs ought to be exempted yeah um and of course there are ongoing running costs like a trust has to put in an annual return and so on and so forth so 
I think it, it would be a very small step for HMRC to extend any exemption to the normal running costs of the trust um, being funded by distributions. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it it benefits HMRC to do this as well, because and I think anybody who's done enough EOTs know that it's pretty bog standard to put in a non-stat clearance to ask them to confirm this is a contribution and not a distribution and all the rest of it. Um, so it's just going to reduce their admin burden as well. Yes. Yeah. So, And I think that's interesting because it kind of leads us to the other thing that... Um, in some ways is a, a, a pointless exercise, but one that has to be carried out. Whenever we set these things up, there are three clearances we apply for, one statutory clearance under the transactions in securities rules and two non-stat clearances, one about the distributions and one about the very, very theoretical risk of a charge under the benefits to participators rules. And essentially the thrust of the consultation document is that the revenue considers they're a bit of a waste of time as well, so what we've basically said in in answer to some of the points they, they made in that context is why don't you simply declare that none of those things apply to the sale of shares into an EOT mm. um, uh, or it possibly within certain specific parameters so that in effect in most or all cases we don't have to waste time and clients money yep. sending in three clearance applications. Yeah. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's that's the first point. Um, I guess the other question is, do, do you legislate that or do you just put that in HMRC manuals uh, to say no, this I, is our practice? I would prefer legislation. Yeah. You know, and it's not difficult to say <clears throat> this is an EOT, therefore it's not caught by transactions in securities or benefits to participators no, but all you have to say it meets the conditions from what two three six h to n or whatever uh, yes no. yes uh, no absolutely um I, it, it, but in mm. a sense uh, anything that more or less says you no longer have to do this um is beneficial what what's important yeah. is not to leave any uncertainty because clients like mm. the the certainty of either a statement from hmrc or a statutory change or a clearance and what they don't like is you saying, well, you know, basically the revenue doesn't normally take this point, but it's possible they yeah. might. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I don't like I, that either, because then I always have to kind of, you kind of, yes. it sounds a bit like you're sitting on the fence a bit. Well, exactly. Um, um, yeah, but in terms of other changes that are likely to have a practical impact, um, the revenue talked about offshore trustees being kind of undesirable. I think it's fairly certain they will insist that all trustees be onshore. Yeah. Or alternatively, and, and this they, they may insist that all future trustees be onshore, but in terms of existing structures, they may simply say that any offshore trustees will be treated as onshore, treated as subject to UK capital gains tax. Yeah, because um, the point with having an offshore trust um, just to kind of set the background on that one, an EO, a sale into an EOT is not an exemption. It's a effectively a rollover relief. So the trustees will inherit the base cost from the vendors. So if they've incorporated a company for £100, they sell it for £10 million into an EOT, the trustees have a base cost of £100. So if they decide to sell, let's say, in 10 years' time for £15 million, they're paying CGT on £15 million. So the idea of an offshore trust is that it, I mean, I'm sure there are people who have set these up for nothing but tax reasons, but if you're offshore under the current regime, there's no CGT for the trustees. Yep. I think, I think we need to wrap up a little bit on EOTs, Nick. We're, we're hmm. almost a third of the way through and we're still only talking about our first topic. <laughs> uh, yep. So I, I was just trying to sort of highlight the other things that HMRC might do mm. that would have a practical effect. So the offshore trustees is one, um, there was a concern from HMRC. They don't want the trustees to be the same people as sold the shares into the EOT in the first place. So that it, yeah, in, so in essence, there's it. no change in control of the company. Yeah. I'm fairly certain they'll legislate something there. Um, the sorts of areas we we and other people have represented on are things like the benefits to shareholders. Sorry, the benefits to the employees are relatively minimal within the structure. Um, really, the only benefit to employees being 
the £3,600 a year that the company can pay them as bonuses free of income tax, but not free of national insurance. So mm. suggestions range from increasing that figure in line with inflation since 2014, possibly extending the exemption to national insurance. Um, and we've actually gone a bit further and said, look, if you're going to treat it as employee ownership, then I think we ought to uh, also change the, the legislation or indeed the uncertainty in the legislation because the assumed wisdom is that anything that ever does get distributed out of the trust is treated as earnings for yeah. the beneficiaries being the employees of the company and I think certainly especially if you've had a long-term hold in an EOT I think it's not unreasonable to say that what the um, beneficiaries receive could reasonably be treated as a capital sum possibly if the yeah. trustees have already paid capital gains tax already tax paid so that looks yeah. more like employee ownership because at the moment um, it's I've, all about the vendor yeah and i think we've most people who i've spoken to that have responded on the consultation have said sort of as long as i've held it for somewhere between five and ten years hmm. allow it then to be a cgt okay so to wrap up shall we put in our predictions let me um I think we'll get well what we hear on Wednesday or what will we get in FA 2024 Wednesday Wednesday <laughs> otherwise okay. we've got to wait another three I think they will announce a suite of changes largely in line with the conduct but hopefully extended a little bit with some of the things that that various people have put in their responses I don't right. think we need to go point by point but I think there will be announcements about EOTs if not next week, then the week after when the draft legislation comes out, because sometimes yeah. if they've already drafted the rules, they, they they just say, you know, wait till the week after. Yeah, um, I completely agree. I think there's there's going to be something. My personal view is increase the income tax free bonus. Offshore trusts probably going to happen. Um, and let's see how much further they go. I'd certainly like to see the income tax-free bonus go up because it's not changed for 10 years almost. Mm. Well, if we're going to um, have a little side bet, I'd say it won't. It won't? Okay. <clears throat> I'll bring that in. Okay, there you go. <laughs> so the other thing that there's been a lot of consultation on, or a big, uh, and, and I mean a lot, um, is is the uh, modernisation of stamp duty. Um, now, yeah. many of you will be aware, perhaps, of the consultation document that, again, came out earlier this year. Um, but some of you might not be aware that prior to that, there was um, a year of monthly calls between uh, HMRC and Treasury officials on the one side and people from huh, the real world, as it were, uh, on the <laughs> other, um, talking about various aspects of stamp duty, um, because it is a tax that hasn't really been modernized i mean until the um until the pandemic uh, it was still a requisite that all stampable documents had to be physically stamped by a building mm. uh, sorry by a stamping machine in a building on edmund street in birmingham um and and before the, about six months or a year before the pandemic the revenue was actually quite concerned because they were having to give up the lease and they had to find a building which hopefully would because all, wherever they went they would have to reinforce the floors for these stamping machines because they're so heavy and it was so incredibly difficult to find an alternative to stamping documents until the pandemic hit and lo and behold they found an almost instant solution to this problem about stamping documents um yeah. But in a sense, that is a, a demonstration of how kind of out of date some of the stamp duty legislation is. Um, it's an 1890 Act that um, is still kind of governs some parts of the legislation. And some mm. of that more or less mirrors the original 17th century legislation. I mean, we're always and, looking at Finance Act 1930 as one of the main yeah, 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 pieces absolutely. of legislation in what we do. So, you know, it's hundreds of years, yeah. And and that actually does kind of hit to the, the, the nub of the point. Um, stamp duty is actually quite a wide ranging tax, although people might not realize it because most of us mm. only trip across it in the context of the corporate transactions. Um, and that's true for Nick and I and our team as well. So our interest was relatively limited. And if I'm honest, um, I think there will be some big changes in the way stamp duty works. Or, or if you like, in the way that the taxation of share and financial instrument transfers actually works. Um, a lot of those will have relatively little impact on 
much of what we do. Um, mm, yeah. I know, first of all, that this is probably going to sound a bit stupid and trivial, but my biggest plea is that if they're going to bring in an entirely new tax, can we please call it something other than stamp duty? <laughs> because, you know, in 2003, they replaced what was then stamp duty on property with what is now called stamp duty land tax, which is a full-scale self-assessed tax that is called stamp duty land tax. And there are people all over the country who are constantly calling us with queries about stamp duty, which turns out to be SDLT. Mm -hmm. um, and the other and way SDLT. around, I talk to them about stamp duty and they say, oh, so what rate am I going to pay? 5%? And I'm like, no, it's half a percent. Stamp duty is half a percent. And that's, yes, that's massive confusion. You know, if, so so I always, I actually normally now start out by saying I'm talking about stamp duty, which is half a percent. I'm not talking about stamp duty. Yes. There's or so or stamp duty on share. Things. I mean, even the revenues manuals refer to, um, is it stamp? stamp duty on shares the sdsm mm. manual um yeah. so i mean it's it is a trivial thing but the number of misplaced inquiries because they they come to yeah. the wrong person who doesn't actually deal with for example sdlt so um yeah. and i think the sort of uh, that that i think was was kind of primary point number one as far as i'm concerned that, that they call it something that describes what it actually does um yeah. because it avoids confusion um we then come to, you know, what is it that the that, that, that tax hits? And we're still finding, you know, difficulties because, you know, we, we automatically say there's no stamp duty on if you sell the shares in a, a non-UK company. But there's still this law in the background that says, but hang on a minute, if any part of the transaction happens in the UK, then there yeah. might be stamp duty. So we're, we're, we're talking to someone at the moment about whether for that reason alone they should use italian lawyers in italy to actually write up the paperwork for the transaction it's going to make our scrutiny of the legal documents a little more <laughs> challenging than normal um but you know just simply because there's an obscure provision i think the 1890 or 91 act that says maybe it, it impacts the uk if it's if we use uk lawyers mm. and yeah so there's no real we're not trying to avoid any stamp duty there this is and it, these are like Italian companies, aren't they? Or well, they're overseas mm. companies. Yeah, yeah. We've so got a is it a UK holding company? Or yes, some, somebody's around in the UK, but yes. most of the operations and the shares we are talking about are non-UK shares. Mm. So using Italian lawyers is perfectly reasonable, um, yeah. and it just makes sure that this slight oddity in the legislation um, isn't a isn't a concern. Because arguably, yeah, even if even if they use UK lawyers, we're still talking about overseas shares, so should there be stamp duty? So, And this is the problem with stamp duty. It's so old. And also the way it's written. I, I think the way the newer acts like CTA 09 and 10 are written are generally more logical than some of these 100-year-old acts. <laughs> oh well, you see, I grew up with the older acts, Nick, and and, yeah, and I, I'm kind of reasonably familiar. <laughs> it's it's possibly to do with the fact that 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 my English is better than yours, but <laughs> almost certainly. <laughs> Sorry, that's a that's a little bit of an in joke for those of you who don't know us quite so well. Um, yeah, but um, yeah, no, I, I I do agree with you that some of the older stamp duty legislation is a little abstruse and a little unfit for purpose. There are actually uncertainties in things like what I call the stamp duty group relief which is the 1930s legislation that you referred to. Mm -hmm. um, I think the biggest bugbear I've always had is that um, at some point, uh, the Inland Revenue, as it was around the 1970s, made a policy decision, or maybe Treasury made a policy decision, that certain transactions, corporate transactions, should be free of corporate tax. So schemes of reconstruction, share exchanges in many cases, and so on and so forth. Um, but didn't apply the same rule to stamp duty. Um, yeah. And I think what what happened, and, and this very explicitly happened in, in the sort of 1970s, because there was a 1970 decision in a case called Brooklyn Selangor Holdings, where a transaction that was assumed to be a scheme of reconstruction, so that it would be free of corporate tax on gains, um, was actually held not to be a reconstruction, which also meant that a stamp duty um, exemption hmm. did not apply. And so the revenue kind of artificially applied a, a, a corporate tax um, 
exemption, which actually was technically incorrect in law. And it took them till 2002 to actually legislate that. But yeah. at the same time, it clearly taken a policy decision that the same transaction that was to be free of corporate tax should carry a stamp duty charge. Um, and I've always wondered what the what the thinking was there or was was it simply that there was no you know, joined up thinking that the yeah. people who worked in capital taxes, i.e. stamp taxes, didn't bother to talk to their colleagues in the capital gains unit or whatever. But it does seem to me that if there is a view that, um, you know, these are usually cashless transactions like demergers and things like that, yeah. where nobody's actually taking any cash out. So there is no money to pay for a stamp duty charge. So we end up having to say to people, well, on top of our extremely reasonable fees, um, you are also going to have to pay this much stamp duty and there is virtually nothing we can do about it. Mm. Um, it, it. It has been one of my bugbears for a long time that if, it's, if, if, if the tax is a fiscal drag on the transaction, why not take out that fiscal drag if you've decided it shouldn't carry a corporate tax charge or, or a, yeah. even a personal capital gains tax charge in some cases? then why is there still a feeling that it should carry a stamp duty charge? Mm. So the, these transactions we're talking about, we can normally do a demerger of a company as long as you've got the same shareholdings before and after in both groups. What we can't normally do is if, let's say, we've got two brothers in a company and they want to go their separate ways and take a trading company each, you can't get stamp duty relief because... When you demerge, you've not got the same shareholdings, and yet you can get capital gains relief, corporation tax relief, and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, I think it just makes perfect sense. I'm not really, sure, as you say, really, I'm not really sure what the policy decision no. was as to why you would incur stamp duty charge on splitting the shareholdings, and and you know, we're, you're never going to get cash out on something like that because no, exactly. it's a reconstruction. So, um, I, I think the mm. other thing that that probably doesn't affect what we do quite so much, but would make life an awful lot easier, um, is to actually make it a proper self-assessed tax. So at the moment, there are no assessment rules, or there may be some assessment rules for, for stamp duty, but in practical terms, there is, for example, no set rule on who has to pay the stamp duty. So yeah. the general approach is that you cannot rely on a document that is stampable unless it has been stamped, for example, as evidence in a court of law. And for those yep. of you who are lawyers who understand that point better than I do, forgive me if I have misstated it, but the principle, I think, is right. Um, so generally speaking, it is the purchaser who will pay the stamp duty because it is the purchaser that is most likely to want to go to court and wave a stamped document and say, look, this proves these shares are mine. Um, but it, it, it seems logical uh, in an era where pretty much every other tax is self-assessed um, that stamp duty mm. or whatever it becomes called should be brought into that fold well we, we've come across that on sort of due diligence projects um we did a buy side due diligence a, a while ago where we came we, we, we it's more of a legal question and we kind of batted this over to the solicitors really but they there was no stock transfer form on a, on a subsidiary that they'd acquired a couple of years prior um and therefore there was no technically they didn't have legal ownership of that company yeah so you know this is it's got it's a small admin point like that having a stamped stock transfer form affects whether you technically own a company or not which is yeah well i think a bit crazy but i mean yeah. I, I think <clears throat> the one thing that we have all come to terms with both our side of the fence and hmrc is that the physical stamping is no longer a requirement yeah um but but simply, you know, it, it, it's it's almost perhaps like a tax clearance. You know, if you've got a, a a note from HMRC that says, you know, this transfer of shares has been accepted or something like that, um, you don't need a great big machine which requires reinforced floors, no. et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, and actually talking about communications with HMRC, um, the other point that I think would affect what we do is actually the concept of pre-transaction clearances. Now, many mm. of you will be familiar with the fact that with um, share exchanges, schemes of reconstruction and one or two other types of transaction, you can actually write to HMRC in advance and get them to say yes or no in terms of whether 
they have a problem with the transaction. The statutory question we ask might be different in each case. Um, but the main one is, you know, is the transaction carried out for bona fide commercial reasons? And is it part of a scheme or arrangements? The main purpose or one of the main purposes of which is the, um, generally speaking, the avoidance of capital gains tax, corporation tax, sometimes income tax, and so on and so forth. Um, and these are statutory clearances. So the, the legislation, again, as most of you will know, actually specifically provides if we write to the revenue, they must write back. And in most cases, grant us the clearances, the assurances that we're asking for. Now, stamp duty, um, if you are going for one of the main stamp duty reliefs, so there's a stamp duty relief on share exchanges under certain circumstances, and another one for schemes of reconstruction, which effectively say, as, as Nick has, has said, you know, if you've got roughly the same, well, if you've got the same shareholders in pretty much the same proportions, um, then you should get the stamp duty relief because, in effect, there's been no actual change of ownership. But the adjudication of those reliefs is done after the transaction. And bizarrely, they have the same tests, bona fide commercial and not for the avoidance of tax. And apart from adding either stamp duty or stamp duty reserve tax to the list of taxes that you cannot be avoiding, you know, they do also refer to capital gains tax, income tax and corporation tax. So it seems rather daft that we write in advance to the clearance unit at HMRC that we get clearance that the transaction we're going to carry out, carry out is fine for everything except stamp duty. Then we do the transaction. Then we have to write a letter to the stamp office saying, do you agree, in effect, with your colleagues in another office that this is commercial and not to avoid any of those taxes? Oh, and by the way, obviously, from your perspective, that we're not avoiding stamp duty. And um, the logic to me is that we reduce HMRC's and our workload by saying, why doesn't the pre-transaction clearance facility include the stamp duty? Because it's the same set of statutory questions. Um, and secondly, you know, the fact that we can do it in advance means we don't have to effectively write the same letter twice. And the point doesn't have to be considered by HMRC twice. And therefore, no. there is also no uncertainty to clients as to the stamp duty treatment of the transaction. Yeah. So mm. whether they do oh, that is moved. <laughs> mm. Shall we? Shall we wrap up stamp duty? Shall we, have you got any? Thought, uh, is anything coming out in, in Wednesday about stamp duty? Um, I'm not absolutely certain. Although the um, consultation ended rather longer ago than rather earlier in the year than yeah, the one it was about for June, EOPs. July, wasn't it? Um, the whole stamp duty is a much, much bigger topic than just mm. the stamp duty on shares in the sorts of transactions you and I get involved with. Um, there's lots of cross-border implications. Um, yeah. It applies to a wide range of financial instruments, which you and I rarely get involved with. So there is an element of me saying wondering whether the only major announcement will be that there is no announcement about stamp duty the government is still consulting perhaps privately internally yeah. or, or or with certain sort of seriously senior people in the stamp duty world and that we should expect more detail in the new year so i'm, yeah. I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb and say no major changes in stamp duty to be announced i I'm going to have to agree with you. I think they've got bigger fish to fry. This is going I to be think... a very boring competition. This is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to come up with some some disagreements, aren't we? Yes. No, I, yeah. I think, A, there's there's bigger fish to fry. I think they've got other things on their mind. Than, and, and I think, as you say, I think this is stamp duty modernisation. This is a big project. This is an <clears throat> EOT where we can look at, you know, um, improving things like the income tax-free bonus or doing bits to it. I think stamp duty needs a complete overhaul and therefore, you know, it, I don't think they will have been focusing on that at this point. Yeah. So I, I'm going to, I'm not going to change much to you. I'm going to say there's going to be no changes to stamp duty. Okay. But we shall see. Yeah. Right. Okay. What shall we move on to? I have heard, um, I don't really deal, well, we only really deal with in, in Jerome's Miller with SDLT on in the case of corporate reconstructions, don't we? Um, mm. I have um, heard about the potential changes to SDLT mixed use, and uh, there are others within Jerome's who do deal with SDLT, so they would probably be better on this podcast than me to talk mm. about it. But 
Um, so mixed use rules is kind of the the major point, um, I think, with SDLT this time around. Um, as it stands, if you have a mixed use property, um, you pay non-residential rates of SDLT. Uh, I understand that the potential change is going to be that instead of paying SDLT rates on the whole thing, you're going to pro rata it. So the element that relates to residential will be still will now be at residential rates. Mm. And, um, and that makes sense to me. I mean, uh, yeah. it never really made sense. I mean, I guess if you bought a row of shops, you know, which which were shops with flats above, I, I kind of could understand there's a policy rationale for saying you've bought a plot of land, maybe some parking, a dozen shops and a dozen small flats, half of which are probably used by the shop owners for storage rather than for living in anyway. Yeah. So there's a rationale for saying that level of mixed use means it's simply a commercial property transaction but hmm. obviously one of the, the driver behind this is there's a lot of people out there sort of saying hang on a minute you've just bought a house with a large garden oh and a paddock <laughs> that, that is used by a local yes. farmer to graze his geese or something hmm. um and and you know so people go oh i've bought a mixed-use property even though what they've actually bought is a bloody great huge house to live in yeah so i think and this makes logical sense doesn't yeah. it as a policy yeah, um, I don't really think we've got much to say here because I think, it, again, we're being boring. We're agreeing. Um, but, I, mm. I, yeah, I think it just makes perfect sense. And, you know, the fact that there has been um, – have there been announcements about the fact that they're going to do this anyway? I, I, I think there have certainly been deliberate rumours, if that makes mm. sense. Um, I'm not quite sure if they've reached the level of an announcement or, you know, sort yeah. of deliberate leaks from from HMT to see what people, how people might react. Um, it's yeah. it's hardly an unknown way of gauging gauging views on policy. Yeah. Um, as I say, or as you say, not really something we do a great deal of, but we do occasionally get asked some of these questions on 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 properties, particularly if those properties kind of exist in the context of of some of the transactions we're carrying out because yeah, we do definitely. for example reconstruct demerge whatever property portfolios and the sdlt issues that come up there are are occasionally important but yeah and yeah. as well as the scottish and the welsh um yes. building transaction taxes just to throw them in there okay yes. so yeah i don't think we need to spend too much time on that i, I think we're both in agreement that we're probably going to see the sdlt mixture rule change Yes. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if instead of an absolute apportionment, it was, you know, if it's more than 50 percent. I was going to say, is there going to be some sort of level yeah. like the minimus almost? Because, I mean, it, logically, if if you've got like the little row of shops that I referred to, you know, if if you then got to say, well, I know that three of those six are used for storage, therefore, is it only three residential units or mm -hmm. six or whatever? So in a case like that, you might be able to say, well, look, if the vast majority is is non-residential, then you don't have to do an apportionment. Yeah, I guess that becomes yeah. harder to actually, becomes more work, doesn't it? Because if you take your paddock example, you might say, well, if it's just a paddock, it's not enough to be able to split between the two. Mm. But then you've, what are you going to do it on area or market value at the date, and therefore you've got. Oh, well, to value I mean, whatever separately. test, yeah, whatever test you have, there's there's going to be no doubt cases on whether you satisfy those criteria. But I mean, I, I think the point I'm making is that if we go to the other extreme, it seems wrong, frankly, that every person who buys and sells commercial property should have to deal with. Yeah. Um, you know residential rates just because in amongst this great big thing they've bought there are one two or three small residential flats yeah so that's um, why i'm suggesting think, a de minimis level yeah i agree but thinking okay. about it in terms of what we do most of them a, a lot of commercial properties are bought in corporate structures and therefore it's quite a significant change when we think we're probably going to have a three percent surcharge on the residential. Well, that as well. that 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 is my point. That yeah. that's another reason why why I think there should be a day minimus. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> i it's trying trying to not have an a negative impact on commercial uh, property transactions while also stopping what is seen as abuse of the mixed use rules. Yeah. In other cases. 
Okay, so let's move on to some of the other things that, if I'm going to be honest, they don't excite me too much because I'm not sure much is going Nick, to happen. Every aspect but, of tax is exciting. Well, is it? I mean, can you say the same about VAT? <laughs> oh, oh! May I apologise? Sorry to all the VAT experts, all the VAT there. people out there. Yes, absolutely. I always um, say to clients, if I'm talking about VAT, take take my words with a pinch of salt because a VAT expert is going to clarify anything I say. Because uh, absolutely, it's far yeah. far out of my remit to be able to advise on it. <laughs> Maybe that's why I'm saying I don't find it interesting purely because it's beyond beyond mm. me beyond me. I'm backtracking. Um, <laughs> You, you've, you, you're interested, I know, in the capital allowances issue, and of course, some of the transactions mm. we do involve the transfers of a trade or business from one company to another. Yeah. So the capital allowances transfer rules can be important. Um, and I know that you're very keen on uh, an announcement that full ex expensing should be extended. Yeah, I think so. I'm not really sure I, I agree with the using the term full expensing. Um, I think it was a bit bit of a strange term to call, to call capital allowances because all of a sudden everyone thought, oh, I can put everything through my P&L. And I'm like, no, there's an accounting concept of expensing and there's a, and, and there's a tax concept, apparently. Um, I'd like them to rename it. But yeah, I, 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 again, I think um, that extending it um, in a sense, a lot of the businesses in the OMB sector can rely on the annual investment allowance up to a million pounds and a lot of businesses, for, for them it is plenty. Mm. When we're getting to the medium-sized businesses, that's where probably full expensing is more valuable. But then yeah. also if, if you're a medium-sized business and you can um, incur capital expenditure, get full relief, and that will drive growth in your company, then again, it's good for the economy. So yes. um, the question is whether they will change anything in on Wednesday, given the fact that, you know, they've it, they've already said it's here for three years. So do they need, is it at this point worth them talking about extending that? I'm not well, convinced. I think you're probably right. I mean, argu arguably not simply because they're not going to be here in three years or yeah. is, is reasonably, <laughs> reasonably certain as, as, as reasonably certain as you can be that they won't be here in three years. I think the wider issue for UK PLC is that they, they're over the last probably 20 years, maybe even longer, um, you know, people, successive governments, chancellors, whatever, have changed the rates, the effective amounts of capital allowance um, and now these so-called fully expensing allowances mm. um they've gone up and down like yo-yos over the years i mean i i remember as a relatively young trainee so lo lo a lot longer ago sort of 31 32 years ago a sudden announcement there was going to be a first year allowance of 40 percent, and <laughs> i don't think it made any difference to national capex but um you know mm. these things have gone up and down like yo-yos and the one scream we hear every time from commerce is Will you please stop mucking about with the rates? Just leave us with something that allows us to do long-term planning. Because this is especially yeah. at the higher end of CapEx, when you're doing big projects, multi-million pound projects, you're actually planning in the tax relief. And if the Chancellor suddenly says, oh, you don't get as much tax relief, your entire cash flow forecast for a number of years can mm. be thrown out. It, you've got to be able to plan. We want some stability in business as much as anything. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, capital allowances, are we going to have any changes? No. Personally, I think no. Although I am going to say, please rename it. Yes. <laughs> That's not going to happen either. You, I presume you're talking about full expensing rather than capital yes. allowances. As no, so. they can leave capital allowances yeah. alone, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, um, what corporation else Corporation tax change? rates. Well, Anything there? I was going to, actually, before we go to corporation tax rates, I'm going to throw in a little controversial point. You and I both know, and many of our our, our um, the people on, on the podcast will know there's been some controversy over incorporation relief and particularly um, mm. Dan Needle's um, articles about a couple of fairly well-known um, promoters of uh, of incorporation schemes. Um, yeah. And I think it's thrown a bit of a spotlight on incorporation relief itself. Now, I think the relief mm. is safe as such, but... I wouldn't be entirely surprised 
if HMRC were considering some kind of review of the the, the, the incorporation relief or that sort of area, mm. yeah, in terms of the way in which it is dealt with in practice, because remember it's also subject to an extra statutory concession D thirty two, which. Yeah. Um, I think is something that has definitely been abused by um, at least one, if not both of those promoters, and so does Dan. Um, mm. Now, I don't think they will announce any changes, but they might no. announce that the the whole area will come under review. And if nothing yeah. else, it gives me an opportunity to put something down on this list that you might not agree <laughs> with. I haven't th I haven't thought of it, so I'm not going to put it. Up. I can Excellent. I can see why they would, and obviously they've already done spotlight 63 um yeah. i mean we we do the more um i'm going to say the the more legitimate planning when it comes to properties in terms of mm. if do, can you incorporate and is there a genuine business yes. um and obviously that's not in any way what these scheme promoters are doing they're doing way outside of the box type of stuff um yeah. so i think they need to keep I think incorporation relief is a valuable relief for those genuine businesses who need to change their business structure for very, very commercial reasons. Um, um, I, I think that's right. And incorporation relief has been there since 1965 um, and will, I'm sure, continue for a long time yet. But what, is, what I think has happened is that these uh, promoters have effectively thrown up some of the defects in the legislation and given the extra statutory concession um, to some extent in the way in which it is administered. Um, mm. So yeah. it will be interesting to see what, well, what if anything comes out of it. And it might, maybe there's no announcements on Wednesday, but I think that's something that is coming. It would be, it'd be interesting if, if that did come up. Um, just as a, just as a slight side note, if anyone has any thoughts, comments, or wants to, um, I think if you put the comments into the uh, LinkedIn comments, they'll show up on our screen and we, we can, we can chat through and, um mm, share your absolutely. thoughts as well as just ours so <laughs> please do contribute if, if there's something you want to say um you mentioned ct rates nick yeah let's have a chat about them will anything happen no uh, yeah <laughs> i mean i i think they've well unless they withdraw from the insanity that is the new upper and lower relevant maximum amounts and all of this stuff i mean I, I grew up with with Irma and Lerma at two fifty and 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 one point two five million or whatever. It may, may have been a little lower when I started training. It was pro probably measured in groats or something. Um, but you know, the, the, we, we are getting queries from some of the smallest companies around on the basis that you know there's a there's a two company group or even not even so much a two company group as somebody owns a company and his sister owns another company and they're worried that there might be associated companies because they both make more than 25,000 and therefore yeah. between them they would exceed that limit of 50,000 and you know I, I I know it's intended to be something of a, a money-making measure but what you're actually doing again is making commerce harder for the smaller businesses yeah. and you know it, for it for any level of business in terms of profits or turnover, whatever measure you use, the smaller the number, the more businesses there are. So it's all very yeah. well saying, well, we want to raise money, but we'll put a £50,000 limit in. But what you're doing is making it harder for a huge number of small businesses in this country because 50 grand isn't a lot. No. And I think the the problem is they we're back into associated company rules where we just had the issue before this, it was just, are you in a group? Um, yep. So we, we they've complicated the tax system again. Well, I mean, this, to be this, fair, these that rules was, were here. Yes, those when, when rules were the same in 2016. 16. Um, yeah. So yeah, but we've when when I thought, oh great, we've got simplification. <laughs> now we're now we're back to back to old rules. So if you were around yep. in 2016, you probably understand it anyway. But um, you know, some of our trainees are having to kind of learn something new. Mm. Um, but the question we yeah. ask is whether it's actually going to raise any extra money, because I think one of the issues here, I mean, again, some of, some people will be aware that if you look at um, corporate turnover, sorry, corporate business turnover, um, it, 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 sort of on a, on a graph, um, 
you would see and, and numbers of companies, what you would see is a big drop off at was it 85,000 or so where the VAT cuts in, because mm. um, if you think about being a business that's grown and is is billing, say, 80,000 a year, um, if somebody says, oh, you need to build some more, you know, hit, do another job for me. And now you go over 85,000, you suddenly have to account for 20 percent VAT, which effectively means. 20% of your income now, or well, rather one-sixth of your income now belongs to the government. So you've either got to put your prices up or pull your belt in. So a lot of people will say, I will take on your job, but not until the next fiscal year, or I won't simply will stop working when my yeah. turnover re Now, by the same token, we've now got a bit of a disincentive for companies to grow beyond 50,000 because the tax rate goes fairly quickly. It goes from 19, in effect, to 26.5%, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and that kind of makes, I mean, we, as we say, we, we, we don't do VAT ourselves, but that 85 grand limit's been there an awful long time, or somewhere around there. Mm. I'm, well, because it keeps I'm going up by inflation, and inflation hasn't been much for, for quite a while. No. Just, um, yeah. I mean, the, the VAT problem is a problem in itself and you know and it's always been there and the reason other european yeah. countries because of course it's an eu tax the reason other european countries don't have the problem is because they started off on day one saying that their threshold is much lower so almost all businesses pay vat so nobody suddenly hits this barrier at a certain point in the growth of their mm. business where they've effectively got to put up their prices by 20 percent or so um yeah to maintain their whether it's standard of living or level of profits or whatever um yeah but anyway so so back to ct rates which is more of our core stuff i think um as you say we we, we don't think they'll change and you know it's a relatively recent announcement as as to where they sit um so mm -hmm. I'd, I'd, it would be nice if they increase those limits a bit because i do think 50 grand is yeah crazy low but well, are you going to I put your money it. where your mouth is? And go on, you know what? what? I'm going to go for it. Increase limits. Increase. This is this is my out there proposal. Increase. So this is your Lerma and Irma, is it? Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Why okay, not? Well, I'm I'm going to say no. They're not going to. So so at least we've got a point of difference here. <laughs> um, um, we've got about three minutes left. What else do we think is worth talking about? Um, IHT. I. I think we could probably, I know, again, it's private client stuff, but um, I, I've, I, I saw from a very reputable source, I, someone, someone posted it on LinkedIn, um, an article <laughs> in the Daily Mail. Okay. Um, so it, it's got to be right um, that they're effectively <laughs> slashing income tax, uh, IHG rates. Um, rates or increasing the allowance? Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, it wasn't overly clear in the article I read, shall we say? I mean, I um, suppose but... if if I am a Tory chancellor thinking about where where are my core voters, arguably they are the same middle class people who would hugely benefit if you suddenly said that three hundred and twenty five thousand becomes, say, half a million, hmm. um, or six fifty, or something. Um, I mean, the worry would be that if you put it up too high, it puts half of our client, private client team out of a job. But, you know, um, we all live with that fear, don't we? Um, <laughs> so, but yeah. I mean, are, are you are you going to make a prediction on that? I'm, yeah, let's do it. I'm going to say. Then. So I'm, I'm going to agree that they might do something to IHT. Oh, so why don't we each fence. come up? <laughs> we can come up with our number. Yeah, go on. I'm I'll going go 500,000. So you're saying you're going to have a um, no rate band of 500,000? Yeah. 500k. I'm going to say they're going to reduce the IHT rate to... Okay. Uh, do I need to put a figure on it? Uh, no, okay. Well, I mean, it, it, let, let's say then I, I'm going for an increase in the new rate band and you're going for a reduced rate. Yeah. That's fine. Happy days. Um, I think that very well brings us to uh, an hour. Yes. And hopefully people have found that interesting. We'll see what happens. We're talking again on um, Wednesday at four. So immediately after the budget, we'll be talking again. 
Um, Speed so reading maybe, beforehand. Yeah, maybe we'll um, we'll come back to these and uh, and see how how right we were. And if I win, Pete, I need a bottle of wine or something. Yeah, well, we have to have a trophy made. Okay, trophy. Well, thank you. That'll do. Yes, thank you, everybody, for tuning in, for listening. Oh, actually, sorry, just, just before we do cross that stuff off there, Rogers just said the, the times are reporting potentially dropping to 30 or 20%. So maybe I will be right. Well, maybe you will. You have to be occasionally, Nick. <laughs> Every now and again. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, thank for, you for, much, for yes. watching us, and hopefully we'll see you next week. Great.